We'll hear argument now on number 02575, Nike Inc. versus Mark Kasky. Spectators are admonished, do not talk until you leave the courtroom. The court remains in session. Mr. Tribe. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In the mid-1990s, there was, of course, an intense debate on the pros and cons of globalization and of the impact of companies like Nike on workers in the third world, where Nike contracted out much of its production to some 900 factories in 51 countries with over 600,000 employees. Now, the critics, many from pro-labor groups, denounced Nike as the chief exemplar of the evils of globalization, arguing that Nike was simply shifting production to places where it could exploit uh, the workforce and act in ways that were illegal and immoral. Uh, And the critics took much of their documentation from the media. Of course, Nike disagreed, using the same media venues as the critics had used to document what it thought were the connections between its presence and activities in countries like South Korea and Vietnam and the development of technological expertise in those countries as well as the expansion of job opportunities uh, there and also arguing that it had put in place significant safeguards against abuse. Products were mentioned only in response to people who said, well, look, this product is made in such and such country and it's exploitative and Nike would have a press release or a Sometimes it would be an op-ed saying, no, you've got the wrong country. This product is made in such and such other place. Uh, these were letters to the editor, pamphlets, it was on the Internet, correspondence. Uh, as you might expect, the critics talked back. There was a lively political dialogue about the realities of the third world and Nike's role in it. A little hard to separate the two when, as the dissenter uh, below, one of the dissenters below said Nike had become the poster child for the evils, supposedly, of globalization. Uh, So not surprisingly, the debate was inconclusive. The surprise came when the story took an unusual turn, unusual at least in our system of government. Uh, One of the Nike critics, Mark Kasky, asked the California courts to endorse his view and to hold that the statements that Nike was putting out were false or were misleading. Uh, He invoked California's unfair competition law and the uh, false advertising law that it included, uh, which gives anyone standing, so Mr. Kasky certainly qualified, uh, to sue another person or corporation here, Nike and its officers, for making any statement in a newspaper or other publication, Sajut uh, goes on to say, or any advertising device, including over the Internet, concerning any circumstance or matter of fact connected with anything the speaker intends to sell, if the statement is 
untrue or misleading. And the California Supreme Court has read that to cover anything that might mislead the public. Uh, The plaintiff, empowered to sue by the Business and Professions Code 17204 on behalf of, quote, the general public, unquote, uh, did not, under California decisional law, have to allege or prove falsity, could be an omission that made something misleading. He didn't have to allege or prove reliance by or injury to anyone or any particular level of fault. An inadvertent omission will suffice under the day decision. Well, certainly some omissions, even though not technically false, could be false uh, in, their, in what they convey. Certainly, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. And in fact, one of the suggestions made by the California Supreme Court for how a company could engage in this debate without any problem is simply omit all the facts that might connect it to the situation. And that kind of omission, it would be certainly alleged, would be misleading. So the only solution that Nike is given is talk in vague generalities. I don't deny, Mr. Chief Justice, that there can be cases and there can even be fraud cases, though it's hard given the pleading requirements of the fraud court that do rest on omissions. But I'm just suggesting how how capacious uh, capacious this is. The relief that is available and was requested by Mr. Kasky uh, includes, and I don't think we should forget the importance of this, an adjudication uh, that the defendant is guilty of an unlawful business practice. And in Nike's case, that would be no small matter. I mean, it would be said, uh, you're guilty of exploiting women and children in the third world, uh, guilty as charged, uh, and not being honest about it. A scarlet letter, more damning than the label of National Labor Relations Act violator that this court a year ago in B&K versus NLRB treated as so grave a blot on the reputation of a company that it mustn't be imposed for activity within the First Amendment zone without giving the defendant significant leeway. Uh, Secondly, there is available a court-ordered injunction, both prohibitory and mandatory, uh, in one case involving the Altadena Dairy in California. Under this statute, the Consumers Union of the United States brought the suit as a private attorney general against a dairy that had been putting out its products of raw milk, saying they were just as nutritious and healthy as pasteurized milk, and the remedy was a 10-year mandate of corrective speech, uh, as it were, corrective education. Um, to, to make them realize that raw milk was not as good as well, pasteurized milk. I, I guess to make some people, this, that's what this statute says, that some people might have been misled. Uh, Needless to say, the kind of show trial that would be involved in this case is a lot more expansive than that one. That case, by the way, took 54 days to try, 44 witnesses. There were 40,000 pages of exhibits. At the end, a restitutionary order of $100,000 was given, and in that case, the attorney general joined the suit. He collected the restitution. Do do we have a case in which we say that it a civil scheme, I, I suppose there's some criminal remedies here, but let's, let's just think about this as a civil scheme. That a civil scheme of this type uh, is so burdensome, so extensive that it chills speech and is therefore invalid. I, I, 
Well, we we have plenty of cases that uh, criminal laws are uh, either vague or overly broad and that they chill expectations. What, what about in, a, in the civil context? I think Bantam Books comes to mind. Yes. And there it was less than this. It was simply you were on a list of books. Uh, it seems to me that the court in the National Labor Relations Act context itself uh, took the position in B&K that chilling effect was important. And what about defamation? I mean, the central meaning of New York Times v. Sullivan and Gertz and, you know, and Time v. Hill is that even when you have someone who is harmed, reputational harm, concrete harm, uh, so that the regulation of speech is simply ancillary to vindicating tangible interest, even there the chilling effect is so great that even though there's no positive value in false statements, uh, you have to put a burden it's a matter of public interest. You want us to say that this, this complaint uh, and the adjudicatory system it wished to invoke uh, chills speech, and therefore the complaint must be dismissed. Is that the remedy well, you're Essentially, asking? that's right. The, well, that, Mr. Tribe, this trial itself is illegitimate. This, but this Court has said that even though commercial speech concerns a public issue, it's still commercial speech, mm -hmm. and we've applied a different test to commercial speech. Yes, just We said uh, that in Central Hudson. We said that in Bulger. Mm -hmm. How do you distinguish those? Well, let me say two things, Justice O'Connor. First of all, the Court has never said that the Constitution and its First Amendment are wholly invisible to commercial speech. That is, if you're going after commercial harms, then there's a lower standard for commercial speech, the four-part central Hudson test. Discovery Network made clear that if you're coming at it from a different angle, commercial speech is just as good as anything else. RAV, I think, dispelled the notion that the Constitution has these blind spots. And indeed, the whole approach of the court below and of Mr. Kasky was we don't even have to deal with your First Amendment arguments well, do you, because you it's you take the view speech. that none of the things alleged in the complaint meet the commercial speech test set out in Central Hudson? Actually, Not we, one of them? That's right, Justice O'Connor. We don't think any of them do. But what even if they did, they this fail? scheme, well, actually, they don't come close in general. And I think the best way to illustrate that is to look not at the various verbal formulas that have been used by this court in terms of whether it's an advertising format, whether it's in one case, I think Justice Stevens talked about something being transaction-driven. But look at the example that this court gave in Central Hudson when it was addressing the question, when we allow greater regulation of speech that is closely connected with the government's power to regulate commercial transactions, we're not in any way limiting your ability directly to comment. The example that was given was the pamphlet from the Con Ed case. That was an example of direct comment. And you look at the pamphlet, which is in the joint appendix uh, in, uh, in that case, and it turns out the pamphlet is a detailed set of statements about why nuclear power is safer, better, cheaper, better for our independence. And you know what? Con Ed had a nuclear power plant, Indian Point, they clearly had an economic interest in promoting that view. And that's the closest any of these statements by No, Maggie there's Dow. another. Think in your mind of two documents. Document one is the letter that Nike sent to the, the athletic managers. Mm -hmm. 
and then put that side by side with the document in the Bolger case. And uh, that's the, the discussion of venereal disease. Right. Now, what — now, I, you have to write an opinion, let's say, that mm-hmm. says the difference between these is — Is that the letter to the university presidents and to the athletic departments of these universities, which is Exhibit R at page 190 of the lodging, is an extended argument about why the claims against Nike are unfounded. It is not in any of its — it doesn't have Air Jordan the, letter the about way the Trojan condoms were, yeah. cond- condoms were at the end of that yeah. submission. And in the Bolger case, again, I think if I were writing such an opinion, I would say in Bolger, we again reiterated the formula that had been used in Central Hudson and gave as an example of something that was not commercial speech the promotional pamphlet. That, that was sent to some uh, — you know who it was sent to? It was sent only to the customers of Con Ed. It was an insert in the bills. So there's no doubt that that was speech that had as its audience only those people who purchased from Con Ed, whereas in this case — these guys are not direct purchasers. And moreover, and I think decisively, that's the closest that anything in this case comes to commercial speech. And as long as we're writing distinctions, mm-hmm. uh, how do I write this distinction? Well, uh, but, the FTC. Sorry, oh, if you're not I'm sorry. I was only going to add that Mr. Kasky, even though he has standing to do a great deal, yeah. does not have standing to sue on behalf of the athletic directors, it turns out, because the California courts in the Rosenbluth case uh, in 2002, said that this is a law where you're supposed to represent the public, not sophisticated organizations, because they might have their own interests. So the closest this case comes — You're supposed to be like the attorney general, Mr. I'm sorry. Sorry. This, this sets up a private attorney general, so this Mr. Kasky is representing the public. But you've been talking about the great breadth of the statute, and I understand all that. But we're at just the threshold. The cases were thrown out in the lower courts because they said there's no circumstances, there's nothing you can narrow this complaint down to, not one piece of uh, literature, mm-hmm. nothing, Please. not one. And that's the problem with this case is that it comes to us at such a preliminary stage. It hasn't been nothing like a trial. There's been no narrowing of anything. So am I right in thinking that to prevail, you would have to show that none of these, uh, that there's not one that would survive past a motion to dismiss? No, Justice Ginsburg, I think that's not right, because what the Court of Appeals said in this case, and its opinion, I think, Merit's reading. It's at least as good as the dissents in the California Supreme Court. What it said was not that we can't pick and choose somewhere in this pile of scattered material, as it described it, something that under a different scheme might be permissible. What we hold as impermissible is making the courts pawns in a public debate and having what amounts to, they didn't use the phrase show trial, but essentially they were saying, a trial in which you in effect, put on trial such a large and massive question and hopeless mix of fact and opinion as the impact on the third world of this large company. What what is your best reason for saying this is a show trial? Uh, In other words, you you want a new category. 
And I had thought your best reason was, and, and, and I want to know whether you agree with me or whether there's something mm-hmm. better. I thought your best reason was that there is no, al- no need for any allegation, and in fact no allegation, that anyone among the plaintiffs or among the, 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 the class on behalf of which they sue, the public, was injured in any demonstrable way. Is that the point? Is that that's, what the show trial thing depends That's on? probably the single strongest point. And let me connect it with a broader theme, because in Discovery Network, when this Court talked about the fact that commercial speech is a category that's relevant when you're going after commercial harm, in a sense, to protect consumers from fraud of one kind or another. In the reputation area, it is, again, not speech alone you're going after. You're trying to vindicate certain interests in not being harmed. You have to have someone whose reputation is Suppose the California regulatory agency uh, signed its name as the plaintiff to this, to this complaint. Well, I think simply adding a name wouldn't necessarily solve the problem. The Attorney General of California put his arm around the Consumers Union in the Alta Dina case. But in this case, no, no, case, but, you but need we, we, have, we have some cases, like the Egg Commission case and so forth, right. where the FTC or the FDA uh, has, as I think, a certain standing, it doesn't have to show injury to itself. That's right. But it does have to show, the statutes are written to require it to show that there is an area of legitimate regulatory concern. Consumers might be fooled into believing by the Egg Nutrition Council that cholesterol is good for your heart. Well, you know, what we're, gonna, you know what we're going to hear next, that the Californians are very interested in this. Well, first of all, if they're very interested, they can do a number of things. They can pass something like Congress passed the Dolphin Protection Act, saying if you really care about dolphins, then whenever can of tuna is sold. It can't use the phrase dolphin-friendly unless certain things are met. California did this with ozone at one point, and then it repealed the ozone-friendly law. But giving a company an idea of what it has to disclose and what the issues are going to be is very different from saying, well, here we are, we're sitting here and waiting until and again, your, is, and again, your best case for this is Bantam Books? Or? Well, I, no, I think the defamation line of cases is even better because at a minimum, they show that you have to have someone who's harmed and you have to have deliberate or reckless falsehood. Imagine why, a why law. Isn't, why isn't it, so if we're going back to Justice Kennedy's question, why shouldn't it be sufficient to say that when it is the state rather than any citizen self-selected who brings this suit, we would at least depend upon some state political responsibility and accountability uh, as, as our, our safeguard, and we would let that go forward because we don't think there's enough risk of improper chilling. The distinction is when anybody can w- walk right. in, uh, there's, no, uh, there's no accountability. Why isn't that the line to draw? Well, it seems to me, Justice Souter, that's a line enough to reverse this decision. But let Why, me just when imagine. It raised below, one of the problems is if you were going to oh. take out this private attorney general, you would be saying this statute is unconstitutional pro tanto. That wasn't argued below. It didn't surface till this court. It was. It was, Justice Ginsburg. On pages 12 to 14 of our reply brief, we detail the sequence. And if you look back at the briefs in the California Supreme Court, uh, the arguments, all of the First Amendment arguments were made, but they didn't get to first base in that court because it said, hey, 
misleading commercial speech gets no protection. Where was, the notice, where was the notice to the California Attorney General that the statute was being, the constitutionality of that statute was being attacked with regard to the uh, private Attorney General? It was only as applied, Justice Ginsburg. That is, it's not suggested, these laws have been on the books since the 30s, and we're not suggesting that they have to be scrapped. It's the I innovative. I thought that, that, that Justice Souter's question to you was, mm-hmm. isn't what infects these laws that, that you are allowing a champion yes. who has no public accountability? And it doesn't, I don't see how that comes to be an as-applied challenge. Well, Justice Ginsburg, it's an as-applied challenge because these laws, if applied only in cases, where harm is alleged and where a court says to solve the problem, we're going to require that it be proved. That is, it would be the California courts that would have to redesign the system to fix it. Wouldn't be unconstitutional. I, I wanted to that get the question that was put to you is: Isn't this statute infirm in every instance where you have a private attorney general who alleges no harm? And well, that's what the statute well, says. I, th- I think it probably is, but I think that the reason that it's not cured, although I agree very much with the position the Solicitor General takes, that that's the deepest disease, even if it's taken out, imagine a law that said, if you utter a defamatory statement that is knowingly false, we're going to impose a gag order. Even if the Attorney General administered it, you'd need to have a possible victim. I mean, if someone says bad things about William Shakespeare and the state of California decides that it is going to have a general floating power to correct speech not connected with the regulatory responsibilities of any agency like the FTC or the, or the SEC, but a free-floating power to correct speech, we think that would be constitutionally infirm. But in this case, in any event, it, it's your position, commercial as speech. I understand it, that even if this action were brought by a public agency, it would still be impermissible. In in this form, where the public mm-hmm. agency didn't need to allege, it was not administering a regulatory program to protect people. I, I, I think. Would you say the same thing if uh, it would be also impermissible for a public agency to? investigate to determine whether or not the statements were true or false? To have an investigation? No. I think that the freedom of speech includes the freedom to have public as well as private debate. That's what this is about. So that you, you would agree a public agency could investigate the charges here to determine whether they are true or false. Could a pri- in a private action, could a private party engage in discovery? to find out whether they were true or false. Well, of course, in this case, discovery is the name of the game. It would become a massive thing. Yes. I think that if we are right that this action dies in a warning, if it's like the statute in Cox v. Cone itself, where it was simply an impermissible thing and where no trial would cure the problem, then you don't get to that difficulty. But if it's a legitimate trial, if the law were redesigned, a very broad discovery might be permissible. I'm a little worried about reserving some time, but I don't want to leave. You, you, you better reserve now or you won't have any to I will prepare. do just that, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you. Very well. General Olson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. California has transferred 
its governmental authority to regulate marketplace communications to anyone and everyone who possesses the price of the filing fee. Unelected, unaccountable, private enforcers, uninhibited by established notions of concrete harm or public duty, have the power to advance their own agendas or personal ideological battles by launching complex, burdensome, and expensive litigation. The interorum effect and potential for abuse is difficult to overstate. This case can and should, we submit, be evaluated according to the means used to regulate speech in California, not the content of that speech. The Court and several of the justices on this Court have explicitly and repeatedly acknowledged that it is exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, to draw bright lines that segregate marketplace speech according to its content into two separate, mutually exclusive hemispheres, commercial and not commercial. These issues arise in an infinite array of contexts. The speakers are imaginative and creative, and rigid, permanent, constitutional categorization is neither advisable nor necessary. If the commercial-non-commercial dichotomy is employed in this case and in others, either alternative has undesirable consequences. Valuable marketplace speech, and this Court has repeatedly stressed that speech in the marketplace of commerce is valuable. It's valuable to consumers. But either it becomes non-commercial, making it difficult for government to regulate to protect the integrity of the marketplace, or it then is characterized as commercial, which can open the day, open the way, to regimes such as California's where anyone with a whim or a grievance and a filing fee can become a government-licensed censor. General Olson, do you think that uh, Congress uh, would be able to authorize a scheme of private attorney general, for instance, to enforce SEC regulations? Yes, Justice O'Connor, with respect to concrete harm in connection with specific individuals, first place, Article Three would require that, that there actually be concrete harm in individual participating in a transaction. This Court has held with respect to 10b-5, Rule 10b-5, for example, that there must be a buyer or seller of security. They'll find in five minutes somebody who bought some Nike shoes who feels the same way. You know, so you'll just have this exact suit with a different plaintiff, possibly, or maybe Mr. Kasky once bought some, for all I know. And, and uh, so that isn't really going to help, is it? Yes, it is, uh, Justice Breyer. It will limit, first of all, it will limit the regulation of marketplace speech to the traditional patterns and okay, regimes. Okay, so in your view, existed. if Mr. Kasky has bought some shoes and is prepared to say, you know, if I hadn't believed their ad and hadn't been deceived, I never would have bought them. We can yes, go right ahead with this suit. If, well, if there are other problems with the California statute in terms of its breadth and its vagueness and things of that nature, but the principal problem that we're talking about here, which avoids the problem of saying um, that everything is either commercial or non-commercial, is that traditionally for hundreds of years the, the private individual who has suffered that injury has been able to bring an action. You know, I, now, I accept that. I'm, you've pointed to the evils of 
both the other positions. But the problem that I'm having with the third set of evils, which I think Justice O'Connor expressed, is imagine an ad. It's really an ad. And it says, our refrigerators are ozone-friendly. The penguins love them. All right? (laughs) And now it turns out they have the worst chemical in there anybody's ever heard of. It's going to destroy the ozone layer. They're lying through their teeth. All right, now that ad, I take it, either the FTC or a private person could proceed against? I would think so. Yes. The answer is yes. Then we have the problem, which I was going to ask Mr. Tribe, and I I need thinking on this. How do you draw a line? How do you draw a line between this commercial is not a commercial, it's a letter sent to the marketing directors, I think that's their best one, and my penguin-friendly ozone commercial. How do we draw that line legally? And you're doing it a third way, but how do we stop the private AG Congress having the right to give the private AG the power to go after my penguins. Well, in the first place, there is the Article 3 requirement of actual concrete harm suffered by an individual. Mm -hmm. There are hundreds of years of common law tradition with respect to allowing an individual who who has received in some way a material misrepresentation of fact, which your question presupposes, that, that, that causes justifiable reliance in the marketplace and actual harm as a result of that conduct. Now, with respect to whether that individual who can then recover the damage actually suffered can go on and then seek some sort of institutional injunctive or equitable relief, the courts over the years, over hundreds of years, have developed circumstances under which the remedy in the injunctive suit or in the equitable action has to be tailored to the actual harm suffered by the individual. General Olson, you're saying that uh, schemes other than the one California adopted would probably make much more sense and be more valuable for producing speech. But what what principle is it uh, that you rely on to say that California's scheme is bad, just because there might be others that would be much more favorable to the market of speech? Our principle, Chief Justice Rehnquist, is that the governmental power to regulate speech in the marketplace, which is constrained by the First Amendment, has been transferred to private citizens without the normal constraints that, that, that well, what is your best authority so far as a case from our court for that proposition? Well, the, one of the — Can you answer it, the question? There, well, I think that I have to start with the Gertz case, in which the, the, the Supreme Court said in the context of a libel suit, there is a governmental interest in protecting individuals from actual injury suffered. But the court went on in Gertz to say, but that's the limit of but the — But when you can buy one share of stock, go into court and say — I, I want a class action. I'm going to pursue this securities suit. It's, it's, it goes back to the question that Justice Breyer asked. I buy one pair of Nike shoes. I come and say, okay, I'm a customer, and I want to sue on behalf of all customers similarly situated. It seems to me that your solution, if it allows room for that, doesn't really get to the problem. Well, we believe it does, Justice Ginsburg. Those kind of suits, persons who brought one share who were misled in the marketplace, or one pair of shoes who had received misleading information and has been actually suffered, um, eliminates the idea that governmental power is being transferred to people in gross, that the license to be government to regulate speech is just turned loose to everyone. These are traditional notions of 
who gets into court, and under what circumstances. General Olson, let me just ask you the procedural question, because I found that your argument was very well laid out, but I did not see that that position was taken. And my major concern was that the California official who should speak to this question is not before us, wasn't in this case as far as I know, the Attorney General of California. Let me answer it this way. This Court has said in Yee v. Escondido that if the legal argument is embraced within the question actually properly raised, um, the litigants can make that argument. It also discussed that same issue in the LeBron case. Aren't you notified if if there's a question of the constitutionality of a statute passed by Congress so that you will have the opportunity to come in and tell the Court what your view is? That is a requirement, and it's addressed um, in the appendix, in the reply brief, and in the appendix to the reply brief filed on behalf uh, of of, uh, Nike. But it's also important to recognize that this specific point is raised in in the cert petition itself on pages 27 and 28. Nike said that made the point other features of the California liability scheme aggravate the chilling effect and then goes on to elaborate on that point by saying it invests every single California resident with the power of a private attorney general. That doesn't show that it was raised and decided below. That's that's correct, Justice Ginsburg, but — and and Mr. Tribe says that it was raised to a certain extent below. I can't answer that question. I can say it was embraced within the question presented. It was raised in the cert petition. Um, it is a, it is an antecedent question for deciding the First Amendment issue in this case. And it is, it is an issue that California courts have been dealing with for many years. For, um, for many, many years, the California courts have talked about and considered whether this any person provision is proper. Let me, uh, I, I, thank you, General thank you. Mr. Hober, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. <clears throat> May it please the court. Uh, I'm going to start with the uh, jurisdictional issues and first point. Mr. Kasky never bought any Nikes. Never bought any. I suppose now he never will. He didn't buy any Nikes. He had no standing under Article 3. As the plaintiff in this case, there was no, <laughs> no case or controversy. If it had been brought in federal court, it would have been dismissed. Now, in these circumstances, uh, this court says, it said in a Sarko, court can still take jurisdiction, but in ASARCO, uh, the state court judgment there uh, established liability and left only questions of what the type of remedy might be. Uh, here, uh, the state court decision by the California Supreme Court uh, effectively overruled Nike's demur and remanded the case for litigation and trial. That is not close to a Sarko. Nike would have to admit that the statements were false to get anywhere near the judgment in a Sarko. So uh, the first point on a Sarko is uh, it doesn't even apply. The court would have to extend a Sarko to even consider the next question, which would be, if the court did that, whether Nike, which of course has the burden of proof, uh, has established uh, that because of this decision, it will suffer or has suffered an Article Three injury. Uh, it's Sarko. The word claim is it's under the fourth exception listed in Sarko. No, that's uh, excuse me, Mr. Breyer. That's uh, that's oh, Cox. Cox. It's Cox. under the fourth Cox, uh, which I will get to in just a second. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, but, but 
Nike has the burden under ASARCO to show that it has, if the Court gets to it, that it, that it has Article III standing, and I'll direct the Court's attention to the reply brief, page 6. And the only, only uh, factor that Nike points to to show that it has Article III standing is, and I quote, the certain injury Nike confronts from having to defend its speech in this litigation. And I will say that I do not believe that the process of litigation uh, counts or qualifies or is sufficient to establish Article III standing. If it were... You can't think of any civil scheme which is on its face so burdensome that it chills speech. You can't think of anything. The, 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 scheme, the scheme would be, Your Honor, perhaps, no doubt, but the, the process of litigation... What I'm thinking of is in ASARCO, if the process of litigation itself were enough to establish Article III standing, then the lessees would have had standing from the moment they Well, but here the, the argument is the process of litigation is what causes the substantive injury. Well, I think that, that — To a First Amendment right, which is clearly uh, <clears throat> something uh, you have Article III standing to assert. The pro- but, but going through the process of litigation uh, — <laughs> If it were a criminal case, the arrest and the prosecution and the ultimate uh, can, can possibility of conviction. But simply going through the litigation does not distinguish. Well, they, that's the question on the merits. They say it does. The question on the merits being the chilling effect of the California scheme. Imagine it was New not York. The, not the litigation. It's not the process of litigation itself. Well, suppose it was the defendant was New York Times. Suppose it was a newspaper. I mean, you know, and, and somebody's trying to stop them from printing an article. Couldn't they get here under 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 similar circumstances? <coughs> under a sarco. Yeah, I mean, issue, I don't as know, a literally, it's a sarco. But, but what we have is a, is a plausible claim that speech of an important political nature is being uh, stopped. Now, that's their claim. Now, I, I would have thought there's a way to get the case here. And, and wh- wh- why, I mean? Well, well, uh, what, what I'm saying is that, that, way, that may well be true, and it may well be true that, that, uh, that a scheme can, can stifle speech and establish uh, a harm, uh, but the, the simple process of litigation, responding to discovery and going through the litigation, is not what is stifling the speech. It's well, that's one of the issues in this case. Well, all right. They, then I'll move to my second uh, jurisdictional point, because I, I want to make sure it comes out. And this is on, on, under Cox. And that is, uh, uh, there is no final judgment, because this is a, uh, in, in the in traditional sense, because this is the overruling of a demur. Uh, but the fourth exception uh, uh, set forth in Cox um, provides a way that this Court can hear a case in this circumstance. But one of the conditions, necessary conditions, is that uh, were this Court to hear the case and reverse, that would put an end to the, to, the, to the litigation, at least to the relevant cause of action. Here, because it's a, it's a, a demur uh, and the question of the sufficiency of the complaint um, against the demur, uh, Nike has to show that uh, plaintiff could not amend the complaint in response to, or respondent could not amend the complaint in response to uh, the, 
whatever the defect might be. Well, that, I don't see that. What the Intermediate Court of Appeals said in California, I would think that's pretty good authority. What the, what the Court of Appeals said in California was that uh, we could not amend the complaint or the facts in the, in the complaint could not be amended to allege non-commercial speech, non-commercial speech. And that's true. Uh, we don't claim that we would uh, allege non-commercial speech. For one thing, the statute only covers commercial speech, and uh, it's a red herring in that sense. Uh, we're under a that we would lose the cause of action and we couldn't proceed. So, yes, the, the Court of Appeal did finish by saying uh, we don't see any reasonable possibility that the <laughs> complaint can be amended to allege non-commercial speech. Uh, so so okay, that but I, let's, let's assume it could be amended in some way. The demurra is to the complaint as it is. And if we accept their position, then you cannot go forward with the complaint as it is. You would have to modify your lawsuit by amendment or bring a new one. And why isn't that sufficient for, for the fourth Cox exception? Well, it, it would, the complaint as it is would not be sufficient. But what Cox says is, for the, for the fourth exception, that the Court's ruling of the reversal must uh, — be preclusive of further litigation on the cause of action. So we gave the example. Well, the cause of action is pleaded. I mean, not a cause of action as you might have pleaded or a different one that you might bring. Well, it, it would be the cause, of, the cause of action would remain as pleaded if the court, if the court were to, to say, and we gave the example of negligence, if the court were to say strict liability is, is unconstitutional, uh, you must have a, something more than strict liability. You must have negligence. Uh, the cause of action would be would remain the same as it as well. I think we're case. I think we're playing with words. You simply could not go forward on the cause of action as you stated that cause of action in your pleadings. You would have to come forward with a cause of action which is in some respect different. It would be more burdensome in order to meet the constitutional objection. And if that is the case, why isn't it sufficient under Cox four that you could not proceed in the in the suit as you have pleaded it and brought it? Well. Certainly not going to argue about words, and what that is certainly correct. That if, if as pleaded, and, and, and we pleaded under the statute, it's a, it's, a, it's a strict liability. And if the court were to say you must have negligence, we would amend the complaint to allege negligence. So it is certainly correct that as pleaded, we would not be proceeding on it as pleaded. We would amend the complaint. What I what I'm saying is that as I understand the Cox exception, the point of it is that the court is saying that. We, we will only take a case under Cox 4 when we know that if we reverse, the case is over on that claim, on that cause of action, not the technicality of the pleading so much, but the reality of it. And if we can amend the complaint to allege the additional element, it's really the same, it is the same cause of action, it's just more burdensome. What you're saying is that that Cox category has real teeth in it and it, you just can't, um you have to show that it's really going to be over. Yes, my, but, yes. But I, one aspect of it is that the demurrer was granted without leave to replete, as I understand it, was dismissed with prejudice. Yes. In, in, the, in San Francisco Superior Court, the trial court, the judge granted the demurrer without leave to amend. Under California law, and I should say, California law is not the federal rules of civil procedure. California law is the field code the updated field code. Uh, but it goes back to 1872, in fact, to 1850. So under California law, when the, when the uh, trial judge uh, granted the demur without leave to amend, uh, we were entitled to, and we did, appeal uh, without seeking leave to amend. And, and under California law, and I, I'll say this in response to uh, 
the statement on page 4 of the reply brief that uh, he makes no uh, — excuse me, that his abandonment of the claim right to amend. We did not abandon — respondent did not abandon any claimed right to amend. Under California law, we're entitled to amend. Uh, we didn't abandon it. I'm not sure how, how, how we could abandon it. We felt we were right on the law, and we appealed from the, from the Superior Court to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal ruled against us and said, uh, as I noted earlier, we don't see a possibility of amended, amending it to non-commercial speech, which we agree with. We appealed to the California Supreme Court because we felt we were right on the law, and the California Supreme Court agreed with us. If, if the California Supreme Court had said, you're wrong on the law, you've got to prove negligence. Maybe the California Supreme Court would have done that. We would have then amended the complaint and proved negligence. We are not going to be able to amend the complaint in respect to at least one argument, which I think is a substantial argument. And that's the argument that this particular statement, whether made to the directors of the marketing or whoever made it, is a statement that plays a role in a public debate about what kind of society we wish to live in, and it's looking towards action of a legislative sort, an administrative sort, or possibly an interdependent individual sort, like a boycott. And that being a statement that plays that kind of role in a public debate, it is entitled to the highest protection, regardless of the form it appeared in, so California cannot proceed. Now, in respect to that kind of an argument, what's your reply? Uh, my, my reply is, number one, if, if, if this Court were to say the, the case is barred, of course we couldn't amend. We could not amend. But so I'm really I'm not, I don't get mean, you to the merits. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm about to move to the merits. I, I'm going to say, say, yeah, there are certain, certainly circumstances we could not amend. Now, on the merits, uh, and in direct response to, to your question, uh, that's not this complaint. That is not this complaint. Uh, maybe uh, uh, there's a lot of statements in Nike's briefs that suggest that's this case and that's this complaint, but the record before this court is in that complaint and it's nowhere else. Well, they say, they're saying, don't look at, look at the statement. It's the statement we're talking about. And look at all their examples. And the statement that Nike gave is characterized, according to them, as I characterized it. So they say, we don't care what it says in the complaint. The complaint apparently would like us something bad to happen to us as a result of having made this statement. That's enough for us. The First Amendment protects us from that bad thing. Yes. And, and, mm -hmm. and why doesn't it? And it doesn't because the statements alleged in the complaint are specific factual representations that say we make our products in compliance with the laws of, of the country of manufacture with respect to wages and overtime, with respect to health and safety, with respect to environmental standards. We pay our workers twice the minimum wage. They are specific factual statements of that kind. They are not statements uh, uh, that go beyond that, that talk about uh, globalization. How is your client hurt by that? My client is here as, uh, as, as a private attorney general under the California provision. So he's, so he's not hurt. So he is not hurt by it. He has, as I said, no Article III standing. He, he is not hurt by it. Uh, he is a private attorney general. 
And on the private attorney general point, I will, I will say this. On, we said in our brief that it was not raised. If he's not hurt by that, how's anybody in California hurt by that? Everybody in California will be hurt by it or is hurt by it in, in exactly the same way that under this complaint as it would be if it had been brought by the California attorney general or by the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, the California statute, apart from the private attorney general provision, which is admittedly unusual, maybe unique, but apart from the private attorney general provision, the California statute is essentially the same as the Federal Trade Commission Act. Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act and the California statute have the same standard of liability, which is likely to mislead or likely to deceive. Uh, the Solicitor General's brief sets out the, uh, uh, the standards under Federal uh, Section 5. Uh, they're essentially the same, a claim uh, uh, that is likely to mislead people, that's material. And so under Section 5, under the California statute, it is not required that that the plaintiff come in and prove actual deception, actual injury, actual harm. So it's, it's precisely the same uh, under either scheme. May I interrupt to go back to your article, your final judgment argument for just a moment with respect to this. Supposing that we should hold that in a case like this where you don't have Article Three standing, that the, the case may not go forward unless the plaintiff can meet the New York Times standard, prove actual malice and gross negligence and all the rest. But it could theoretically go forward if those allegations were made. My question is, is it your understanding as a matter of California law and as a matter of the history of this case that you would have the right to, to file an amendment to your complaint making those allegations? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, then if that's true, is it clear the case is not final? The judgment law is not final. Well, on the, on the, the same grounds I said before, we, if, if the Court were, were to add uh, and, and a, It a would be only if we were to hold that no matter what you allege, New York Times or anything else, these statements are constitutionally immune from criticism in a proceeding of this kind. Only in that case would the case really be final if we held that. Well, the case would certainly be final if the Court held that. We, yes. we would not be able to amend. The case yeah. would be over. Uh, on the private attorney general, because it is an unusual provision, I will only say this on, on the question whether it was raised below. Uh, that's an easy — we said in our brief it was not raised below. That is an easy matter to settle. Nike filed the brief. They filed the brief in the California Supreme Court. Uh, well, what, what, if, what if it weren't raised below? I mean, if a basic First Amendment challenge to the statute is raised below, I mean, if you lose in the Supreme Court of California, you're certainly not just going to repeat exactly the same arguments. You're going to think up some new ones. Well, <laughs> I will only say as a matter of fact, it was not raised below. The California Supreme Court did not address it. It's not even in the cert petition. Uh, you can look at pages 8 and 9 and, and 19 to 23, and they've got a different argument. It's not there. That's the fact. Uh, the upshot of not raising it below, um, I'm assuming the Court doesn't address arguments that were not Well, the Escondido case says there's some latitude there. And I, and I know I'm aware there's latitude, and there's, a, there's latitude as to what's an argument and, and what's a claim. But, I, but this is a very specific argument, that the private attorney general provision is unconstitutional. Is it, is it correct that in the Court below they did uh, raise the point that, in fact, there was no harm here, and one of the defects of the procedure was uh, that no one, either suing or no one uh, of the class on behalf of whom suit was brought, 
uh, had or was alleged to have had suffered any injury. That was in their argument, wasn't it? Not that I recall. Uh, I don't recall that argument. The if, it, if it was, would that be enough? Well, it certainly, it certainly would not raise to my mind an attack on the private attorney general provision, but, uh, uh, I mean, the private attorney general provision is a well-known and well-understood well provision that stands out. And to, to attack it, I think you have to mention it. Well, I, I mean, if, if the, the argument is not merely that there is something magically wrong with a private attorney general. The argument is that what's wrong with a private attorney general uh, is that without public accountability, the attorney general can sue without, uh, in effect, showing any harm. So whether you use the term or not, that's the guts of the argument. And if they raise the guts below, isn't that enough to, to get If they raise the guts below, it would be enough. Uh, I, I guess I would say they didn't raise the guts below. But if they did, yeah, how yes. How does it I'm, count in California if, if a litigant is challenging a statute as unconstitutional in every instance, th that you cannot have such an institution of a private attorney general, doesn't the attorney general... Uh, weigh in on those cases? Yes. The Attorney, the attorney General in, in California under this statute, and it's not just for the private Attorney General, but under the, 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 the false advertising and, and unfair competition statute, any time a case gets on appeal, the Attorney General gets served with the briefs. So when we appealed, in the first instance, we served the Attorney General with our briefs and we, in the Court of Appeal and again in the California Supreme Court and the Attorney General came in and filed an amicus brief in the California Supreme Court on our behalf, which, of course, only related to the merits, the commercial speech issue, which was the issue we were litigating. Not on the issue of whether you no. could have this kind no. of animal. No, no. Uh, I want to draw the Court's attention uh, to, to footnote 3 in the reply brief. Uh, I think this may clarify some matters. And, and in particular, the phrase in, in, in footnote 3 that says public agencies. Um, pay, uh, I'm sorry, it's page 3, footnote 3. Uh, and the reference to public agencies. Um, the argument that, that the private attorney general provision is unconstitutional because we don't have any injury and, and allege no injury and it's, and it's unconstitutional, uh, the result of that argument is that respondent is an improper plaintiff. Uh, it's, it's just doesn't, it doesn't meet constitutional requirements as an improper plaintiff. If the Court were to hold that, then there are no further issues for this Court. And that is why I, direct, uh, I focus on footnote 3, because in footnote 3, as I, as I read it, uh, Nike is saying that even if the Court holds that the private attorney general provision is unconstitutional because the plaintiff has no injury, uh, nevertheless, the Court should go on because there will be future lawsuits filed by public agencies. And the court should go on to impose uh, a scienter requirement, deliberate or reckless falsehood. And I want to say that uh, those public agencies, which is another word for law enforcement, which would be California Attorney General, uh, the district attorneys, and not only California, other states and the FTC, they are not before the court. Those parties are not before the court. I don't think we can represent those parties if, if respondent is an improper plaintiff uh, there aren't any further issues, and we can't. Well, well you, you try to have it both ways. You say, well, I'm here because I'm a private attorney general, but uh, I, I, I can't really try this case uh, as well as an attorney general could. Well, no, no. That seems to me quite inconsistent. Oh, I don't want to say that, Your Honor. I want to say that uh, that if, if we turn to the merits of this case and, and 
get away from the private attorney general. If the private attorney general provision is constitutional, then respondent is in the same shoes as the Federal Trade Commission or the uh, California attorney general. Uh, and that as far as the merits go, there is no difference. I said earlier that the California statute, uh, statutory scheme, is the same as Section 5. All right. Except is, 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 I want to get you just back once more, if I can, and you may have nothing to add. But I suppose we have to get to what I find in this case personally the hardest question. I think that the Federal Trade Commission certainly has the right to regulate unfair, deceptive advertising, particularly on matters of, of, uh, that you're trying to sell the product, including those having to do with, say, the environment. I also think that the First Amendment is designed to protect all participants in a public debate. And public debates, contrary, in my mind, to what you said before, are made up of factual statements primarily. So once you tie a party's hands behind his back in respect of facts, you've silenced him. Now, if all parties should participate equally under the First Amendment, and also you should be able to have regulation by the FTC of deceptive advertising, how do I draw that line? Well, uh, in this case, the reason I say, and I'm not trying to carve out facts as different from, necessarily different from anything else, the facts here were representations about the conditions under which the product was made. I know, right. and I now, think, those, now, but that, that's not going right. help me. What I'm really looking for is help in writing a hypothetical opinion. I have to write a standard or a rule or a statement, and I know that 30 briefs here, which are excellent, have tried to get at that, but I'm still in my mind uncertain about, say, your view or the others on what that sentence should say, trying to distinguish the ones from the others. Well, this case, and, I, and I'll start with the focus here, the, the, the debate in this case that's in the complaint, and the only debate that's in the complaint, is a debate over what, in fact, was going on in the shoe factories. What, in fact, were the conditions? That was the debate. Now, that debate is not the same as a public debate about a larger public issue. It is a debate about this company's actual practice. But is, is it different for First Amendment purposes? Well, I think, I think it has to be, Your Honor, because uh, uh, the, the, the company is making representations to consumers about its own practices for the purpose of convincing those consumers that they should buy the company's products. So it is commercial speech in that sense. It is, not it, were, a, it is not a — Whereas if it were about globalization and what is happening in these countries, it would be different for First Amendment purposes. Yes. It would not be about the company's — these statements are about the company's products, the conditions under which the products are what made. What difference would that make? I, I, I really haven't been clear on what difference it makes, whether it's commercial or non-commercial. So long as it's false and so long as it misleads somebody, well, the court has said that if it is yeah. that if it is commercial speech and it's false or misleading, uh, it's not protected by the First Amendment. I, I, it's also true that false factual statements have no constitutional. No, but I mean, even if it's not commercial speech, uh, if if somebody uh, misleads me uh, to my detriment with a false statement. Uh, 
I wouldn't have a cause of action? Yes, you would have a cause of action. Uh, you would certainly have a cause of action. And if I sold you a watch and told you it was made in the United States and you relied on that and bought it from me and I lied, or, or even if I innocently told you that, you could rescind the transaction. Is, is the only way I can rely to my detriment is if, is, if it is commercial speech? I mean, it seems to me if I rely on a, on a statement uh, that, that the person expects me to rely on, and I do so, and it harms me, I have a cause of action. I, do you, does it really I, matter I, whether it's commercial or non-commercial? I suspect speech? it does not for, 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 for a cause of action alleging reliance uh, to my detriment. And Can you think of any case that this Court has decided in which the outcome has depended on whether or not the speech was commercial? Other than the case that the California Supreme Court decided, there there is a paucity of authority from this I wonder court. If there's that any was at all directly on point. Yeah. Uh, uh, no. Uh, the case that that was most important, and uh, this maybe gets back to Justice Breyer's point, uh, for our purposes, would be the Egg Commission case, the Egg Commission case, the National Commission. Egg nutrition, because there was a product and uh, there were attacks on the product, uh, saying it caused it, cholesterol was bad. And this is 25 years ago, and I guess we're new. Uh, and and the federal trade and the egg, egg industry fought back and said, no, eggs uh, eggs are helpful in nutrition uh, and, and they don't harm you. Uh, so that was a case where you had a dispute or a debate about the product. Yes, but where I am really is I, I think it's possible to look at the commercial speech cases as creating a doctrine with an exception, and it's the unfair advertising that falls outside the doctrine. So all we know is we're back to square one as far as the commercial speech doctrine is concerned, so let's face it as if there were no such doctrine and try to figure out how under the First Amendment we get proper standards. Well, And, that, and, and that's what I'm trying to figure out. Well, I, yeah. If, if the court wants to do that in this case, I mean, I don't know if want to do it or not do it. I'm trying to figure out what, how, how to go about it. If I ended up thinking we should go about it, then my suggestion is that this case alleges specific representations about a, co a company's products, namely the conditions of which they were made. Consumers rely on those representations. Uh, Solicitor General agrees with that. Uh, they rely on those representations, and they rely on them in making decisions as to whether or not to buy the company's products. When companies make representations about their products with the purpose of consumers relying on those representations, and consumers do rely on those representations, it violates Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act. It violates the California statute, and it ought to be subject to regulation. Well, just because something violates, you're suggesting that if, it, if it's contrary to Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act, surely it must be constitutional. But I'm not sure. I don't know that we've ever said that everything in the Federal Trade Commission Act is constitutional. Uh, no, I'm sure the Court has not said that. Uh, and, and, and I'm — Let's — go on. Let, let, let's assume a, a law that uh, — uh, that, uh, I guess that, that there were, uh, that, that requires uh, advertising on radio or television um, to be supported. Uh, 
that you, you, you cannot make the claim unless the claim is supported. All right? And the burden is on you to have the support before you can even make it. Uh, and it's a violation, even, even if it happens to be true. If, if you have not done the studies that show that this little pill does this thing or, or another, you cannot make the statement. I suppose we would allow that in, in advertising, wouldn't we? But would we allow such a, such a precondition to, uh, to speech in, in, in a non-commercial area? I'm sure. I, I, I suspect not. So there is a difference between what we're willing to do with commercial speech and non-commercial speech. But why, won't, why wouldn't we limit, it, limit the term commercial speech in that context to advertising? To really, uh, and, and some of our cases speak that way, it has to be the context of the offering of a, of a transaction, the offering of a deal. So that if you have some general, you know, advertising on television where, a, where a, an environmentally concerned company, it doesn't fall within commercial speech. It's only if in connection, you know, on the, on the label it says, buy this because, or, you know, it, it's a pitch to sell the product. Isn't that a line that it's feasible to draw, and why isn't that a sensible line? It may be feasible to draw. I, I, I imagine it would be difficult to draw, and I think that's why the Federal Trade Commission says uh, advertising, product labels, other promotions, and marketing material, because it, in many instances, is not easy to draw. Well, Com the California Supreme Court defined commercial speech uh, as speech when a person is engaged in commerce, just generally. Is that their basis? I think the California Supreme Court was trying to spell out what it — Do what you it, defend the California Supreme Court's well, definition? We don't need to go as far as the California Supreme Court may have gone, in particular with its definition of product references, because I think the California Supreme Court was concerned about so-called image advertising and the possible, possible ways companies promote themselves apart from well, the particular product. Well, if this case, if we reach the merits and if we have to address it, we're going to have to know what commercial speech is, I suppose. Yes. And we're going to have to look at California's definition. Yes. And I just wondered if you supported that. Well, we support it, but we don't have to go as far because in this, because we have representations about the product, the, the circumstances under which the product was made. We certainly agree that uh, — None of this speech was advertising in the true sense of that term, was it? Well, if the true sense means advertising format, no, these were not in adver advertising format. But, for example, the, 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 uh, w one of the uh, exhibits is, the, is a primer, a 30-page primer, which uh, looks for all the world like the kind of promotional brochures and marketing material that's handed out by lots of companies. Now, it's not — an advertisement on television. Uh, and, and that line may be feasible to draw or may, may have fuzzy edges, but uh, it's going to leave out a lot of promotions and a lot of communications that consumers rely on. You know, it's, it's not a perfect world. No, no, it's, it's not. Worse. It's worse, actually, because I think your case, the truth of the matter is, I think it's both. You know, it's both. They're both trying to sell their product and they're trying to make a statement that's relevant to a public debate. Maybe so the, what do we do if we're drawing this standard and there's a wide range of things that, quite honestly, fall into both? Well, my, my position is that it's consumer protection 
is — Trumps the First Amendment? Not that it trumps the First Amendment, yeah. but — but the hypothetical is it's both. Yeah. And, and if it were just the — if it were — if it was — it was — companies do — as the Court has said, the companies have the right, or speakers have the right, to comment directly on public issues. And, and if you comment directly on a public issue and discuss the public issue, you are certainly protected. If it's very difficult to define commercial speech, then isn't it true that under this scheme, companies are chilled in speaking? Well, they — they may be chilled in speaking if, because of the difficulty in defining commercial speech, and that presumably will chill false statements as well, since the, the statute and the regulation only applies to false or misleading speech. And, and I, I think that to the extent the, the definition is, is, is unclear, uh, it may. I don't know that for a fact, uh, but uh, it's, it's plausible. Are, are, there, are there cases where we've upheld statutes that are chilling of speech? Oh, yes. Yes, there are. <coughs> what are they? <laughs> I you haven't said that they're chilling of speech. <laughs> <laughs> I think you caught me there, Your Honor. Um, on back to, to Justice Breyer's question, uh, I don't think anybody would say defining commercial speech is easy. Uh, but in this case, where we allege that, or the complaint alleges, that the company <coughs> made factual representations about its pro- the circumstances under which its products are made, are made uh, with the purpose of persuading consumers to buy the product, and we know that consumers want that information and rely on that information, uh, that should fit within any reasonable definition of commercial speech. If are you saying that you can't distinguish what you are targeting from, say, a label that says "made by disabled veterans" when it wasn't? You, you put them in the same category. I put that in the commercial speech category. Thank you, Mr. Holbrook. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Tribe, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Let me just deal with a couple of technical things first. Uh, The Attorney General of California was notified below. He filed a brief. It's not required in California that all of the arguments be rehearsed before him. And most importantly, the California Supreme Court passed on the fundamental claim that this scheme applied to public debate violates the First Amendment. Uh, And under Yee v. Escondido, in any event, we can make a different argument. But if you look at the brief below, the most telling part of it, I think, and it gets to the pivot of this case, is at pages 30 to 31 of the California Supreme Court uh, brief, it there recites that if the shoe, as it were, were on the other foot under California law, this case would go away in an instant. The case decided unanimously by the Supreme Court of California in 1984 is Epic v. Superior Court, in that case, there was an ideological boycott of companies that were doing business with the plaintiff. The plaintiff was not thought to be environmentally friendly enough. The plaintiff sued. Trade libel, they wanted damages, they wanted an injunction, they said it was an interference with contract. The trial court was about to hold the trial, and the Supreme Court of California, citing Article One, Section 2 of its Constitution, said, hey, public debate. There are interests on both sides, but the courts of California can't resolve it. 
it seems to me that what we have here, and this goes to the question of the private attorney general action, is that if there is a debate between interests of labor and interests of management, the California Supreme Court has transmogrified this old statute, which was pretty strange to begin with, but had never been used to stifle and silence a public debate. It's transformed it into a conversation stopper. And the power to do that is, I think, extraordinary. They say maybe there'll be a chill. If you look at the media brief, the media are now saying that businesses around the world are already afraid to communicate with us because California may get them. And the European brief, filed by a consortium that controls about $2 trillion of investment, says that the efforts of the European Union to encourage transparency are being frustrated by California saying that if you come out and answer these charges, as they did in the letter to the athletic directors, uh, you can be trapped because you're a business, so you're trying to make money. So it's commercial speech. Thank you, Mr. Tribe. The case is submitted. Thank you, Mr. Chief. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.